Today's message comes from 2 Samuel chapter 3, and we will be looking together at verses 1 to 21, and I hope that you will meet me there in your own copy of Scripture. And I want to begin by reading the first sentence of the first verse. It says, The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. After all the drama and all the build-up to get David, God's chosen king, to this point, we see that everything has ground to a halt. Israel has reached a point of standstill. They are locked inside of what seems to be an intractable civil war. On the one side, we have David with the tribe of Judah and the general Joab. On the other side, we have the house of Saul, led by one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, who has rallied the other 11 tribes and whose army is led by Abner, the general. And it seems that they are locked in this conflict, and there's no end in sight. It lasted a long time. And I wonder if for you right now, it seems as though life has reached a standstill. Where do we go from here? What is happening? Will this pandemic ever end? Do we have any realistic prospects of a vaccine? When will we be able to plan again? When will life as normal return? We reach this point sometimes, do we not? Where we don't know what's going on. And here's where we need to be very careful. Because when we reach the point where we believe that life is at a standstill, and we don't know what's going on, and we don't know where to turn, and we don't know where to look for guidance, we are subject to a particular temptation. For some of us, we just give up on God altogether. It doesn't seem to us that there is a God who is governing the world at all. But for believers, we can start to think, well, if God is king, then where is his kingdom? What is he up to? And we can start to act and we can start to believe that deliverance and help depends upon us. And we can start to act and we can start to believe that we need to take matters into our own hands. Or else there won't be deliverance. And so we start to pin our hopes on the things of this world. On our plans. On our politicians. On our party. On our platform. On whatever it is that we think we as human beings can concoct. And here's where we need to be reminded of the truth. 
revealed in Psalm 33, verses 10 to 11. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. His counsel, his will, his plan stands firm forever. And as for what we come up with, God thwarts all of them. He foils the very best of our inventions. And so we need to be reminded, especially when we feel like everything is at a standstill. We don't know what to do. We don't know what's going on. We need to be reminded of this truth. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. Why? Because of what I'm going to call the bigger picture. When life seems as though it's reached a standstill, don't lose sight of the bigger picture. The bigger picture that God is in control. That God has plans that stand firm forever. And that no matter how much our plans and our purposes are crushed and demolished, God will prevail. Never lose sight of that bigger picture. And never lose sight of the truth that God doesn't need us to fulfill his plans. And if we are to keep that larger picture, that bigger picture in view, we need to remember two cardinal truths. Two cardinal truths. The first is that God controls all things without condoning all things. God controls all things without condoning all things. From eternity, God has either decreed or permitted everything that comes to pass, yet without ever being the author or the approver of sin. And yet God controls all things. And remember this truth. God's control will always override human conniving. God's control will always override human conniving. What we scheme, what we plot, what we plan, all of that, God's control can and will override. And if we are to see the bigger picture in life, both in our individual lives and our lives as a church, as a nation, we must remember these two cardinal truths. And as we turn to 2 Samuel 3, we see how these truths are played out and we receive guidance on what it looks like to see the bigger picture in life. And in the second sentence of 2 Samuel 3, verse 1, 
we see how God's larger plans are playing out. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. God is fulfilling his plan. Now continuing to verse 2. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His first was Amnon, the son of Ahinoam of Jezreel. His second, Kiliab, the son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithrium, the son of David's wife, Egla. These were born to David in Hebron. What is happening here? The narrator has clued us in in that first verse about what is happening. And we can see the division between what people see on the human level and what God is doing. On the human level, everything is at a standstill. Everything is stuck. Nothing good is happening. They don't know what God is doing, and it seems as though God is completely absent from the picture. But in the second sentence, we see what's going on from God's point of view. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. God's plan stands firm forever, and God is working out his plan. Now, why do we need to know all of these sons who were born to David? One thing we need to know when we fall into thinking that everything is at a standstill and we don't know where to turn is that a certain level of complacency can set in. While no, David doesn't have the entirety of Israel under his rule. He only has one tribe, the tribe of Judah. He does have a crown on his head. He is living with a certain level of comfort. And we need to know that times of prosperity, when things are going well, can often dull our hearts and lull us into thinking that we can do as we please. And David fell into this trap, sadly, on two counts. The first is he's guilty of polygamy. Having multiple wives. He has six sons here, and they're each born to a different wife. And we know from the beginning that this was not God's design. God, from creation, established marriages between one man and one woman for life. And yet, we see time and time again how God's people, even faithful people, fall into doing what they please. Now, why would he do this? We need to understand that in the ancient world, having multiple lives, wives is not just about your own pleasure. It's not just about a patriarchal society, although that's part of it. It's also about political alliances. Notice where these people come from. 
One wife, Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. This is where Hebron is. This is where David is, is hiding out from Saul's house. So he naturally has married into that family so that he has cover. We're told of Absalom, the son of Maacah, daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. Where is Geshur? Geshur is north of the other 11 tribes. So that now he has alliances in the south and he has an alliance in the north so that he is surrounding Ishbosheth in the house of Saul. Very shrewd, very political, very diplomatic. All of these marriages have a reason. But is it right? No. God had established his people Israel, and he had told them from the very beginning, you are not like the other nations. And your kings are not to be like other kings. While other kings will have their harem, will have their, their household full of wives and concubines, that's not to be true of you. And God spells this out explicitly in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Verse 16, The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself, or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And the irony of all this is that this is exactly what virtually all of Israel's kings do, including the greatest of Israel's kings, David. He ignores what God has said. Do not accumulate many wives for yourselves. And notice the reason. It's not just about breaking a rule. Notice the reason. Or his heart will be led astray. Or his heart will be led astray. If we're to see the bigger picture in our lives, we must keep our hearts alert. Keep your heart alert. Your heart, who you love and what you love in life. We cannot afford to let our guard down. No matter how much prosperity may lull us and dull us into thinking that we can do as we please, that God has brought us to this point and we can do whatever seems right to us. Because remember this, if David... A king after God's own heart fell into this trap. How much more do you and I need to be alert and on guard against this danger? That's one thing we need to see. The other thing we need to see is that God, despite David's sin and even through David's sin, is accomplishing his plan by building a dynasty out of the household of David. He is multiplying David's descendants, one of whom we know to be the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is controlling all of this without condoning what David's doing. And God's control is overriding David's conniving here. Both those are in view. Now, we shift scenes in verse 6. Let's see what's happening in the house of Saul. 
during the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner, that is the general of Ishbosheth, had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. Now Saul had had a concubine named Rizpah, daughter of Aya. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said. So he answered, Am I a dog's head on Judah's side? This very day I have I am loyal to the house of your father Saul and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David. Yet now you accuse me of an offense involving this woman. May God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not, not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Ishbosheth did not dare to say another word to Abner because he was afraid of him. What we have in Abner is a shocking confession and a shocking portrait of human pride. Human pride. And what you need to remember, if, if you were to see the bigger picture in life, you need to keep your heart alert, but also keep your pride in check. Keep your pride in check. Look at how Abner's pride is just oozing through everything he says. We're told that he's strengthening his own position. And one of the ways that he seems to be strengthening his position is by sleeping with Rizpah, one of the concubines that is not an official wife, but a woman in the household of King Saul. And why would he do that? Well, this is a, a way in which he is showing that Ishbosheth is merely his puppet. He's exerting power. Maybe he has designs on the throne itself. And I don't think there's any doubt that he actually did this because Ishbosheth says to him, not what did you do, but why did you do it? Why have you done this? And we can see Abner's guilt through everything he says. Look at how quickly he's offended and how easily he's offended. Our pride. Something you need to know about yourself is that, in general, you have too high of an opinion of yourself. I don't know all of you, of course, and I haven't seen inside your life, and I, I don't have a magic ball or anything that lets me know that, but I do have the Word of God, and the Word of God says that we are all liars, and we all lie to ourselves. We deceive ourselves into thinking that we are something when we are not. We deceive ourselves into thinking that our sin against a holy and righteous God isn't that big of a deal. We deceive ourselves into thinking that we can minimize our transgression and our sin. And that's exactly what we see with Abner. Look at what he says. Am I a dog's head? <laughs> and when he alludes to a dog, he's not talking about a cuddly friend or a loyal companion. He's talking about an animal that is, is generally wild and that just goes from house to house looking for scraps. 
And he's saying, do you think that's who I am? After all this time, you, you, a grateful person, how dare you? How dare you? After everything I have done for you, Ishbosheth, you're on the throne because I put you on the throne. And we see how he minimizes and rationalizes what he did. After everything I've done for you, you're going to make a big deal about this woman? Come on. You think it's that big of a deal? And look at this. Look at this. The peak of his arrogance shines through in the transition from verse 9 to verse 10. He says that he has known God's promise to David. And yet, he has been fighting against God's promise. He knows that David is God's chosen king, and yet he's been resisting. He's been a willing rebel against God's purposes. And look what he says he's going to do. I'm going to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Did you catch that? He's going to do it. Never mind it's God's promise. Never mind God's plan. He has that power. And he's going to exert it. Oh, how we need to keep our pride in check. And a real test here of when our pride is not in check is when we are so easily offended by someone calling us out. Ishbosheth doesn't make any threats. He doesn't tell him he's going to put him in jail. He doesn't say he's going to do anything bad to him. He just says, Why did you do it? And look at how, how Abner lashes out Am I a dog's head? How dare you? How dare you tell me I did something wrong? If that's you, take note. If you're going to see the bigger picture in life, when life is at a standstill and you don't know what to do, check your pride. Check your pride. Well, now Abner has changed sides. And so we continue reading in verse 12. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, Whose land is it? Make an agreement with me. Literally cut a covenant with me. And I will help you bring all Israel over to you. Good, said David, I will make an agreement with you, but I demand one thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michal, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, Give me my wife Michal, whom I betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. So Ishbosheth gave orders and had her taken away from her husband, Paltiel, son of Laish. Her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, go back home. So he went back. All right, what's happening here? What I want us to see is how every person here, Ishbosheth, Abner, David, all of their motives are impure. They're all operating out of what makes the most sense politically, what, what is most, most expedient and easy for them and for their personal welfare. 
there's some backstory here on Michal. What's the deal with Michal? Well, she was David's wife at one time. We read about that in 1 Samuel. And David did purchase her with the price of 100 Philistine foreskins. Gross, but true. And it was all really a test of the villainous king Saul to see how much of a warrior David was. Well, David triumphed against all odds. He received Michal, but it doesn't seem that he had a lot of devotion to Michal, and she's going to really make fun of him in just a couple chapters from now. And why would he want to have her back? Well, political reasons. What he has here is an opportunity to marry into Saul's household so that David's house and Saul's house are joined together. And then maybe this civil war will end. Makes political sense. And why would Abner agree to this? Well, Abner wants to prove his loyalty to David. He's done with Ishbosheth. He's given up on him. He's on David's team now, so he will do whatever needs to happen. And Ishbosheth, well, he wants the civil war to end too, and this seems like a fairly simple demand. And he doesn't want to make Abner any more angry than he already is, so he consents. All to the chagrin of Paltiel, son of Laish, her husband, who goes weeping and has his wife torn from him. And what you and I need to know, and what we need to remember, if we're to see the bigger picture in life, is that we must keep our motives pure. It's not enough to ask, what are you doing? We need to ask, why are you doing what you are doing? And if you're a good religious person and you go to church a lot and, and you would say that you're a, you're a Christian, that you believe in the Lord Jesus as, as Lord of your life, that's all good and well, but why do you go to church? Is it because all your friends are there? Is it because you are born and raised and bred and into the church? Why do you do what you do? Check your motives. Are they pure? Who do you aim to please? And as someone who occupies the public teaching office of the church, as a pastor, this warning is especially acute for me. Because every time I stand behind a pulpit and I open the Word of God, I have to ask the question, who am I aiming to please? I love getting positive feedback. I love hearing how a message blessed you. And when somebody's critical, on the other hand, it hurts sometimes, right? That's my human nature. And so every time I, I take on this responsibility, I have to ask the question, who am I aiming to please, you or the one who's given the word? And I need to be reminded of my, my motives in doing this. That whether you love what I say or you hate what I say, whether you're bored to tears by what I say or whether you just check out altogether, 
My purpose is to bring glory to God through His Word. And if He says, well done, good and faithful servant, well then, I have done my job. Check your motives. When you say a prayer, are you saying it to please someone else? Do you hope other people will think that you are devout and pious by what you say? Check your motives. Political calculations, people-pleasing, can so easily creep into our thinking and can so easily corrupt even the best things, even praying to God can be corrupted. So know that. Know that's what the enemy wants you to do. Next, we see how we need to be careful of our words. So we look at verse 17. Abner conferred with the elders of Israel and said, For some time you have wanted to make David your king. Now do it. For the Lord promised David, By my servant David, I will rescue my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to the Benjamites in person. Then he went to Hebron to tell David everything that Israel and the whole tribe of Benjamin wanted to do. When Abner, who had 20 men with him, came to David at Hebron, David prepared a feast for him and his men. Then Abner said to David, Let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my lord the king, so that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may rule over all that place your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. So what is Abner doing now? He is, is building support for the house of David. He's going around to the different elders, and he's saying, look, David is God's promised king. And if you just read Abner's words, you would think he's suddenly become a prophet of the Lord. Samuel couldn't have said it any better. By my servant David, I will rescue my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Has he been converted? No. No. Abner is still Abner. He is motivated by expediency and he is motivated by vengeance. He's offended by Ishbosheth, so he turns and he's going to say whatever he needs to say. He's even going to go to the Benjamites, which is the tribe of the house of Saul. He's even going to bring them over to the house of David. And he says to David, he has all the right words, let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my Lord the King. He knows all the titles, Lord and King. He has all the right language to say, I'm going to bring them all under you, David. We need to know, if we're to see the bigger picture in life, to know what's really going on, we must keep our words straight. That is, we must keep our words in alignment with our hearts. And our hearts must be aligned with the will of God. You'll recall these frightening words from the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name 
and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will say to them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. They said all the right things. Lord, Lord, they had the right titles for Jesus. They did great things in his name. And Jesus says to them, get away from me. I don't know you. If that doesn't terrorize your soul, I don't know what will to have the Lord Jesus say that to you. And again, I feel this as a preacher. James 3.1 says that I will be judged more strictly because of my office and because of my responsibility under the Word of God. Keep your words straight. Think about what you're saying. Why do you say the things that you say? Do you mean them? Or do you say what you say merely out of habit or custom? Or because you want the acclaim of people? And you want to make somebody happy just like Abner wanted to make David happy? Check your heart. Is it alert to this danger? Check your pride. It's dangerous. And we also need to know that despite all of Abner's conniving and David's conniving, God's control overrides them all. The sword of God's judgment will fall on David's house soon enough for his polygamy. The sword of God's judgment will fall upon Abner soon enough for his treachery and for his efforts to try to rebel against God, to use God, to use God's king, to use God's promises, God's plans, to, to, to willingly rebel against what God has said. Know that danger. But to see the bigger picture in your life, knowing that's how we are, and knowing that God sees us exactly as we are, as we read in Psalm 33, verse 15, He who forms the heart of all, who considers everything they do, we can deceive ourselves, we can deceive one another, we cannot deceive God. He knows, He sees. And, we need to know that we should be able to see ourselves in David and in Abner. It's easy to throw stones at them. It's easy to point out their faults because God's Word has shown a light on it for us. But when you look inside your own heart and inside your own life, do you see those things as well? And if you do, here's the good news. Ephesians 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh 
and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We stand in the same place as Abner and as David in sin, gratifying what we want, what looks good to us. And then hear this good news, verse 4. But, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You want to know the bigger picture? Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, your life as a sinner fully deserving of God's wrath does not have to be the end of the story. There is more to the story. There is a bigger picture. And it includes redemption and grace and mercy and kindness and love. All because of Jesus Christ. So do you know Him? Do you know Jesus? Not just his name, not just his titles, Lord, King, Savior. Do you know him intimately? Have you heard him call your name to call you out from that former way of life and into this new kingdom? Because if that's your story, then it doesn't matter how much life comes to a standstill. It doesn't matter what you don't know. It doesn't matter how lost you feel sometimes. It doesn't matter how hard life becomes. You are anchored to Him. And if you are anchored to Him, then you are anchored for eternity. I pray that you would take hold of what He has made available inside of God's bigger picture as we go to Him in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you for how you teach us both through positive examples in Scripture and through the failures of those who have come before us. And I pray, Lord, that this would not just be a dusty old story in, a, in an old book, but that it would be a living word to us and for us and that we would be humbled by your word and that by the work of your Holy Spirit, we would be convicted of our sins and that we would repent, repent from whatever it is that is distancing us from you, your presence and your love. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. Help us to cling to Jesus. Help us to look to him. Help us to obey him and submit to him, come what may. Lord, we believe that you are in control and we are glad for we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are so glad that you've been able to join us through this service of worship. We hope that it's been a blessing and an encouragement to you. We hope that you have a wonderful week.